0: as if anything this is important <laughs> okay well guys welcome to what is here saturday morning shanga it's friday evening for most of you and todd welcome this is the first time that you've been here thank you and um you uh you've made the point about Distance, And so uh, one of the things that we can start talking about is that um, Western Buddhism is suffering under uh, a situation that the people in the time of the Buddha didn't have. When the Buddha spoke in the language that he spoke, he was intentionally careful to speak in a language that people understood. And so uh, the teaching of the Dhamma was clear and evident and has been clear and evident uh, to all the countries that it's gone to in the sense of it went to China went to Burma, Thailand, to Sri Lanka, to Tibet, eventually to Japan and Korea. And uh, when it arrived, it has arrived quite well in the sense that whatever the uh, the original teachings of the Buddha was, that the people in the time that the Buddha understood, that was what was distributed. It wouldn't get into another culture and another language. A lot of uh, misunderstandings happened. In fact, there's a movie I've seen Uh, or at least uh, seen bits and pieces of, it's uh, about some, I think it's about an American in Japan, and the name of the movie is Lost in Translation. Hmm. Guess what? Buddhism and the teaching of the Buddha gets lost in translation. And uh, there's a number of words in the Pali that if you understand the words correctly, and, to, and take the teachings of the Buddha from the perspective of what the word actually mean, then it's an easy thing. The problem is that we use language uh, trying to translate out of the teachings of the Buddha himself into a language that we already understand. And I don't mean English as opposed to the Pali, I mean a mindset. And our culture has a mindset of delayed gratification. Everything that we talk about has to do with delayed gratification. Eat your peas and carrots before you have your dessert. They started off in childhood. Do your homework and clean up your room, and then you can play on your cell phone. Okay? And this keeps going on and on and on. Work is more important than play. And so our culture is deeply, deeply wrapped up into that. And it's been that way for basically centuries. Oh, that's the way that the mentality is. Uh, And so when there was another issue, and that is, is that when Buddhism spread around Asia, it was spread around Asia by those who knew what the teachings were. That was not the case for Western Buddhism. Buddhism was uh, um, spread in the West by Westerners who had no clue about what they were spreading around. It was almost like that they had a beautiful ornate uh, puzzle box. That the puzzle box itself unopened was marvelous and brilliant enough that that's what they were passing around without even understanding that that puzzle box Is a puzzle box that can be opened, and the real prize is on the inside. Okay, and so um, that inside is not hundreds of miles away, it's right there inside that box. Or another way of thinking about it is, is that we have translated things wrongly. An example of that is the word, the Pali word, samati does not translate into the word concentration It's very problematic. Another one is the one that you uh, were already uh, kind of mentioning, and that is when we talk about the Eightfold Noble Path. That's a misconception because the idea of a path is a destination, a footpath, a bicycle path, a path to Nirvana, a path to there, here, there and yon. Uh, whether it's a highway or uh, a weeded old jungle path. And that um, the the real translation or a much better translation for the Pali word of uh, MAGA is the word method. The Eightfold and open method to open that box. You put the key in, you turn the crank, You turn the knob and you open the box. That's all there is to it. But Western Buddhism say, says that that box is so far away. And you don't and nobody's got the key. And so uh, I have actually heard people. This was years ago, and I assume that it's still common. Maybe you guys have heard it. Uh, The idea that there hasn't been anyone enlightened for centuries. Have you ever heard any of that kind of stuff? What that means is the guy who said that says, I have been looking very hard and I have not found anyone that I think is enlightened enough for me to claim that he's enlightened, especially since... I have my own personal view of what the word enlightenment is. And guess what? Everybody's got their own personal view of what enlightenment is. And it's almost always way out there, way far away. A distance. And that we've got to work really hard and struggle to get there. The reality is, is that we have been working and struggling hard our whole lives and have not gotten anywhere with that but we've been told that that's the way to do it. you got to keep working, you got to keep struggling. Language like, if first you don't succeed, try, try again. This mm-hmm. is the way that uh, people uh, are taught in the West. Um, and that it's been attributed to Einstein, but we're not really sure of who said this. But uh, the quote is, is that uh, Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting new results. Is a good definition of insanity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I use that remark, uh, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again with Vicky Buddha Dawson, he laughed, he said, no, if you're not succeeding, look at what you're doing. Now, look at what you're doing actually is, in fact, The Eightfold Noble Path with a slight little change, and that is look at what you're doing and then make a change to that right now. That basically the Enlightenment is a change of attitude, and we can change our attitude. In fact, we change our attitude about all kinds of things on a regular basis. Look how many people will vote for one political party this time and another political party next time. Right. Mm -hmm. So we go around changing our mind about things all the time, and it's possible for us to change uh, our mind about things that are what we would call deep seated. But another way of talking about it is, is that it's not so much deep seated as that it's been old started when we were in childhood and then we repeated it over and over and over and over again until it really uh, got ground in. It's sort of like if you keep painting your house every month, you paint that house, but you keep painting it with the same paint that you had, but you paint it over and over again, hoping that the color of the house will change. And all we're doing is laying more layers of paint on the house and What possibly needs to be done then is we need to, in order to get a good paint job, we need to scrape off all of that old paint that keeps buckling and boiling and and whatnot like that. And that's the work that has to be done. It's not the new paint job, it's that the old paint job is interfering more with our new paint job. Mm -hmm. And so this is what the practice of Anapanasati is, is the practice of inspecting that old paint job and then making changes to it. If you see it bubbling here or cracking there, you just scrape that part off and get this thing ready for a better paint job. That's all there is to it. And uh, there's many, many teachings uh, that Westerners don't understand that is actually part and parcel of the practice Zen, for instance, will tell the, uh, the the Zen master will say, "Just sit. You're already enlightened. Just sit." And yet, most of the people who practice Zen say that I had to practice just sitting for twenty years before I realized that I was now okay. I'd learned to sit, and that was okay. And we could have changed our attitude about I was okay, I was already enlightened, and now I can just sit. There's also the story about the Zen student who walked into the the Dhamma hall and saw the old teacher sitting over there in the corner and they went over and says, teacher, teacher, are you meditating to become enlightened? The old man opened one eye and says, I'm just sitting here because I'm already enlightened. All right, so that's the way to look, that we actually are sitting and practicing to be enlightened right here, right now. It's really amazing that people would, you can actually imagine that if if anything, enlightenment is the skill of not going dark. And so it's a skill to be developed. And if it is a skill to be developed, then that means that people are going to sit in their meditation hall year after year, after year, practicing day after day, after day in darkness, hoping somehow that the light's going to shine. They don't know where the light is. They don't know where the light switch is. They don't know the source of power. And yet they think that it's going to turn it on magically the story would be that the comma machine waltzes into the room, checks his list off, says, oh, well, you've done 30,000 hours of meditation here. And he takes the Shakti pot and he pops you on it and says, now you can have some bliss. You put in the hours. Okay. How Western mentality is that? And yet a lot of people will on Reddit will brag how many hours of meditation or how many years they've been practicing or whatnot like that. And, um, Um, It seems that there are, are, again, two jobs possible here. One job is to take the students who have already developed the skills or some skills and help them to improve those skills while removing a lot of the knowledge that they have had, which is, you know, doing a lot of scraping of paint because a lot of the Buddhism that they've learned is just a bunch of old paint of the wrong color. (laughs) (laughs) But the other side would be those who don't know anything about the teachings of the Buddha. And now we can start fresh, but then they don't have any painting skills. And so one job is different than the other, but they wind up being basically the same. And that is that we need to pay attention. what's happening in this present moment, rather than planning on the future. That's the real teaching of the Buddha is that everything happens now. That this is such a profound and important teaching that uh, the Buddha referred to himself as Tathagata. Have you ever heard of that word, Tathagata? It also comes out of the two words of tatata and ga. Now, the word ga is the same word in English as go, but we can also use the understanding of coming and going as just a direction as opposed to the actual effort of coming and going. And the word tatata actually translates. Badly in English as the word "thusness," mm-hmm. but the reality of the word is is that this is it. This is here now. I mean, this what's happening. That's it. Okay. This is this is it. So, what the word "tatagatha" means is the one who is in the here now. And is translated badly as "thus gone one," and nobody understands what "thus gone one" means. Right. But if you look at it closely, the one who has gone to this, the one who is here now, he's not in the past, he's not in the future, he's not in some other location mentally. If he is in New York, he's thinking about the vicinity that he's in in New York. He's not thinking about Chicago. Mm -hmm. So here and now is the actual teachings of the Buddha. And there's an actual practice that we have To bring us to that and the practice is the eightfold noble method that we practice. We practice a method and that in the practice of that method, we develop skills. And one of the important skills is to learn to be satisfied right now at this present. moment, whatever is happening, whatever small success that we have we should look at that rather than the failure. So if we have 100% of of, uh, badness, then we've got none good. And so we could just sit there and complain. But if we have just a tiny little bit, just 1%, then we can start focusing on that. This this useful value and wholesome and let that build as a skill. Mm -hmm. As opposed to Oh, this 1% is not good enough because look at all the 99%. Look at all the work that needs to be done rather than uh, appreciating that things are okay right now, that 100% unsatisfactory is 100% unsatisfactory. But 1% satisfaction versus 99% unsatisfaction depends upon what you're looking at. If you're looking at the 99%, then everything looks bad. If you're looking at the 1% and only looking at the 1%, then hey, that's pretty good. So, that means that we have to remember to stop looking at the bad stuff, which we've been trained to do. That's part of our culture. Is you've got to improve. You've got to make things better. This is what the word good, better, and best, and, and bad, worse, and worse are all about. Is Making these comparisons this isn't good because that's better. This used to be good until I found out about better, and now good's not good enough. So. What we're going to do is begin to turn around those comparisons, which we can also think of as critical thinking. And we we think critically, oh, 99, one, no. We're going to change that around to uh, one's good enough. One percent's okay. That's good enough, better than zero. And so we begin to work with it from that perspective of right now, things are okay, even at just the 1% level. So another analogy of that would be, imagine that you've got a seed. That seed is the seed of a tree. And if you plant that seed and grow that tree, it will have more seeds, and within 100 or so years, you'll have an entire forest. But if you give that seed to a meditator, you know what he's gonna do with that seed? He's going to cut it open looking for the forest. What we need to do with that seed instead is to plant it and nourish it and give it sunshine and water. Let things be juicy. Okay. Well, that's actually then the practice, just how you would nurture a seed for it to grow into a tree. Is exactly the same things that we need to do to have that seed of wisdom, knowledge, and good cheer grow within each one of us. That if we criticize the seed, that's like cutting it off and looking for where's the tree. What we need to do instead is to nurture the seed, put some sunshine on it, allow it to grow. Let things be safe and secure. All right. So you probably heard uh, that there is a word that is very, very common, almost so common that it made it into English language that comes out of the Pali, and that is the word dukkha. You probably heard that word, and it is almost always, even by mistake when I'm talking to Beth, will translate it into the word suffering.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But it doesn't mean suffering. You can tell in in fact that the people who recently did the translation chose the word suffering because of their own background. And so Christians, they love that word suffering. I mean they've got a big dude who really knows how to suffer. And they and he's taught them how to do it. And so Christianity has a whole lot of things to make people suffer. They've got hell and they've got um, the rapture and Armageddon and uh, big gods with great big fists and all kinds of things like that to keep people afraid and intimidated. So they can be closed. And that's what's really all about what capitalism itself is is a system of exploitation. Who can exploit whom? And take advantage of them. Totally. And so the word Dukkha does not translate well into the word suffering because it misses the point almost completely. Christianity has it is that if you suffer enough, then something or something will happen so that you gain mercy. Enough is enough, okay?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's like you have to wait for the pot to boil all over before you turn the heat off. The point is you can turn the heat off any time. You don't have to wait for it to boil over. So uh, in in this regard, we can learn then to practice Anapanasati in the way of recognizing what's happening in the moment. And then make a change to that in the moment, right here, right now. And if we continue to do that, if we continue to take 100% darkness and put 1% light in, and we keep doing that over and over again, we develop skills so that it becomes 1.1%. And it begins to grow that way because we develop skills. So this is the basic teaching of the Buddha, and this, in that regard. The word dukkha doesn't mean suffering because none of you are suffering right now. No one. I don't know anyone who actually suffers unless they're really, really, really worried about something. And then the suffering comes. But they got into that state of worry a little bit at a time. And that little bit was a little bit of dissatisfaction. And while no one around is suffering, everybody around is dissatisfied with something or another. Or perhaps dissatisfied with a whole lot of stuff. I mean, look how many people are dissatisfied with Putin. And last week they were dissatisfied with Trump. And before that, they were dissatisfied with Biden. And before that, they were dissatisfied with COVID. And so we just keep going from dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction rather than looking at the process of moving from one dissatisfying thing to the next dissatisfying thing. And we begin to see that we can change, but we have to practice that change. And this is what the Eightfold Noble Method is really all about, is the practice of looking at what we're doing right here in now, recognizing that we could make things a little better right now. And let's do that. Let's make that change. Let's not be things the way that they are. Let's make some small, some slight improvement. And by doing that, we're beginning to change things from being unsatisfying and unsatisfactory into becoming satisfying or satisfactory. Well, hello, Corey. I notice you've been lurking. You got your hand up now. Your mic is off.
1: Your mic is off. Your mic is still off. There you go. (laughs) It'll come off sooner or later. There
2: There you go. go. Um, So I was thinking about adaption, and because adaption seems to be this concept that. Is like kind of has a positive tone, right? But essentially I. Feel like there's some connection there to dukkha right dukkha is doesn't fully satisfy or it's dissatisfactory or it doesn't create lasting satisfaction right and if we think about it that's that principle of adaption is something that we notice all the time right uh, we call it tolerance when you know you have like some kind of like a tolerance to caffeine we're adapting to caffeine the satisfaction that we get from caffeine it doesn't last very long we adapt to it right this principle is there in so many things. But it's interesting because Dukkha, it seems very elusive and mysterious. We're kind of like, for me, I just didn't really, couldn't identify what it was. And I don't think that adaption is Dukkha, right? It's, but I think that adaption is somewhere in that process of Dukkha. Um, Here's a
0: question. Do you want to adapt when you're adapting or do you want to not adapt when you're adapting?
2: Well, I don't adapt at all. It's a natural process, but
0: um, I'm not asking I don't really... about natural processes. I'm asking about when that adaptation is happening. Do you like the adaptation is happening or when the adaptation is happening, you don't like what's happening?
2: It's half and half because at first it's really nice to get stronger and adapt, but then it's really kind of stinky when you don't like caffeine, when caffeine doesn't really do anything for you anymore. So there's a well, certain. Let's use a
0: bigger one because that's a little bit subtle. How about being adapting to getting arrested?
2: That's a pretty bad one. I'm not gonna want to really do that one. But then again, well, if you adapt to it, it's
0: you not so bad. To, it might be a case where you might get arrested. You just don't know what the future is going to be. So it might be wise for you to get the skills necessary so that you can, in fact, handle whatever you've got to adapt to and, and handle it well, rather than handling it badly. So going back to the original question, it's not about whether there is adaptations to be done or not. The question is, are you going to do the adaptations satisfied? Or are you going to be doing the adaptations dissatisfied? Your choice.
2: Yeah, I was just trying to point out to people, it seems like that adaption is something that we all know and we're aware of. We've experienced it before. It's a very easy experience to grasp. And Douglas. Right. Seems- That's
0: why I don't have to do anything with that, is because we already know that there, I mean, you guys have been adapting your whole lives. You adapted to first grade, you adapted to a pencil, you adapted to all kinds of things, right? But yeah. many of the students, when they were adapting to the pencil, they didn't like that pencil at all. And now whenever they write, their hands hurt because they're really yep. holding to that pencil, okay? Yeah. And others, they adapt to the pencil and they do it happily, and now they can become polygraphers or artists.
2: Right. So, like, everything it's good and bad.
0: No, yeah. no. Everything is a matter of attitude. There is no good or bad. Everything I guess is we a matter of your attitude. If you don't like it, you'll think it's bad. If you do like it, you'll think it's good. That's an ignorant process that we all have to do on a regular basis. And it's how we feel. By the way, take the um, uh, the hand s- signal down. Oh, yeah. <sighs> Oh, Todd, good to see you back again. Yes, Robert, you've got your hand up.
3: Yeah. So I find um, it's interesting that one of the adaptations that seems to take place during this practice is um, an increased uh, sensitivity to dukkha in uh, more subtle ways than we might have seen it before, I feel like.
0: Ah, when you look at what you're doing, what you're doing is dukkha. And when you begin to look at what you're doing, you're beginning to see that, all what I'm doing is not satisfying to me. Maybe I can make a change so that what I'm doing is satisfying. And we can do that by putting whatever we're adapting to in the moment back down because we don't have to adapt to it. That's one thing. If we recognize that what we're doing is painful and harmful, then we can stop doing that. So it's really not about adaptation. Adaptation is just going to happen. An example of that is, is that you move into a city that's got a lot of fog po- and pollution and you moved off from an island where the air is. You can adapt to that new air, but most people won't like it. Very few people would like to move out of clean, fresh air environment into a dirty, polluted city. All right. So it doesn't matter about what we have to adapt to. It has to do with whether we like the adaptation or not. Now, this is the major teaching of the Buddha. This this is uh, a teaching about Petita Samupada. That is uh, uh, an important quality of the path Uh, and that we can teach this basically in several different ways. One would be the natural way, which is the one that I do tend to do it with. And then the other one is the organized way of actually teaching Paticca Samupata, this step leads to that step leads to that step leads to, to that step, which is one of the ways of teaching it. But another way of teaching it is to see right here, right now, that one of those aspects of Paticca samuppada is happening in this point, uh, Corey, about the point that if we do adapt or not adapt, is not the question. It's that whether we like doing that adaptation or don't like it. And if we don't like it and don't like it ignorantly, then we're going to be suffering. We can also not like it, but not like it wisely. In other words, a mother can uh, not like the child being naughty and she can tease the child about it. Or she can not like the child being naughty and she can get really uptight and angry and fuss and punish the child. And that just seems to be the normal way that we're doing things. So the mother did adapt to the child, but she adapted to the child's naughty behavior in one way, because it was okay. children are naughty. Let's teach them. And this is a wonderful learning experience. Or we can uh, be dissatisfied with the child being naughty, and then we can get angry and uptight and make things even far worse than they were before. So it's not about whether we have to adapt or not, because you've got to adapt to all kinds of things. That's what life is all about. Everything is in constant change. Everything is in turmoil. You're going to be doing a whole lot of adapting in your life. The question is, are you going to adapt happily? or Are you going to adapt unhappily? Your choice. And how we get started is by adapting um, to Anapanasati and at least do one thing happily that we adapt to gladdening the mind. We adapt to then looking what we're doing, remembering to look at what we're doing. We adapt then to taking the right effort to change the mind from an unwholesome state of not liking it into a wholesome state of liking it. Now we can adapt to a stranger coming up. Mostly how we adapt to a stranger is by being both curious and wary. Because we don't know who he is. Okay. But we almost never decide from the get-go when we meet a stranger to be happy and joyful and glad to meet him. The only people who can do that are the ones who were trained as salesmen. Everybody else is, is uh weary <laughs> and and doesn't doesn't want to meet a stranger because they might be dangerous. So the uh, to finish off with this question, Corey, let's not look at what we have to adapt to, but let's look at the process we go through in our habit of how we adapt to things. Because what you were adapting to four five years ago and then four years ago, you adapted to whatever you were adapting to in a frame of mind and building that habit so that when something new has to be adapted to, you're going to react to that new adaptation, the way that you reacted to it in the old days, which is that if you didn't like to adapt, then you didn't like it. Many people don't like to move, but some people get used to it. My situation, because of my dad's um, uh, job, I moved. From town to town. About once a year. I got adapted to that. And eventually. I, liked, I learned to like it. In the beginning. I didn't like it so much. But I learned to like it. In some of those small southern towns. That I was in. Boy I couldn't wait to get out of there. Only to go to another southern town. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's finish that. Alex you've got your hand up. Hi, Domorado. So good to see you. Ah, you've shaved. <laughs> I've shaved, yeah. I'm
4: not the mysterious stranger anymore. <laughs> Domorado said that I was a sinister man for having a mustache.
0: No, he took that. That's what he heard. That's not what I said.
4: <laughs> I know. I'm just throwing you under the bus. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, um, Domorado said, is that. People unknowingly their actions and the way they think about my appearance could affect the way they approach me and basically my relationship with them based on the appearance of a mustache because
0: of the dark features. Which I could totally see that. So anyway, you got a question. You got your hand up. Yes. Yeah, so my question was, um.
4: when it gets to feel really good and things are really great and the thought of i want more or this isn't enough comes up and you keep continuously throwing it out but it comes back and even if you feel really good after that You're it comes about back
0: throwing out a thought
4: throwing out the unwholesome thought of i want more okay. yeah this isn't good enough. Um, that's basically what I notice is like kind of like a plateau. Well, I'm not even gonna say that. That's that's an unwholesome thought in and of itself. But that's something I've been noticing that no matter how great it gets, there's like a
1: oh, I want more. Mm-hmm.
4: So I'm curious if you had any suggestions on how to on a Panasati my way through that.
0: Well, there's the opposite of case also. And that is, is that when you are told there is more, you say, no, but I'm good enough already. I just did that. That's what I used to do. I've been doing that all day. There's that aside to it also. Hmm. You see, You see both sides of that?
4: You're talking about what I say with you when things aren't going well.
0: Well, you did that with your mom and you do that with your boss. I mean, if you're going to do it to me, you're going to do it with everybody.
4: Okay, so you're saying that when I say, no, this is, I'm staying like this, like a stubbornness, right? Like, I'm Uh staying like this, this is okay. Uh, Actually, I don't know. I don't see the similarities between those. Can you you say more about that?
0: Both sides come from the state of dissatisfaction. They're both dissatisfaction. So let us say that you're here. And that there is this. Mm. Okay. And we can say that, oh, well. I want this, but this is good enough. This is good enough. This is good enough. Mm -hmm. Or Mm -hmm. you can say this is not good enough. I want that. But they're both coming out of dissatisfaction. Mm hmm. The satisfaction would be, oh, yeah, I can see that.
4: Mm, mm. And you keep and that's like the one percent, ninety nine percent analogy you were giving earlier. Right. So Mm -hmm. the the little bit of success or satisfaction that's experienced from seeing it and then the success Mm -hmm. that's experienced from acknowledging that success, the enthusiasm and that satisfaction just naturally grows the more and more you focus on it.
0: Right, which is another way of saying that if I, if you come in with 1% and it's pointed out to you that, yes, that is nice, it's a 1%, and uh, there is the 99%, then the other side of it would be, well, hell no, I don't care about the 99%. Look how great I am at 1%, but it's said in the state of anger, justification, uh, uh, as if the pointing out of the 99% was saying that you're bad because you only have 1%. And the answer to that would be, congratulate yourself for the 1% and let that grow, as opposed to saying, no, you're bad because you pointed out the 99%. So uh, the whole idea then is to come to a state of satisfaction in the moment rather than in the moment justifying bad behavior in the past or justifying good behavior in the past Mm. when we're actually talking about what's happening right now. So, and this happens a lot when students will... uh, uh, will come up and uh, ask a question, and while I'm answering the question, they said, Well, I've been doing that, I've been doing that, as if they're trying to convince <laughs> me yeah. that, that they used to do it, when in fact, in this present <clears throat> moment, they're not doing it,
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. And so that's how we cling to the past. We cling to uh, the past. In fact, uh, in in the Roman times, they had a an expression that is still used for um, that. And that is, is that we stand on past laurels. In other words, I won that game one time. That means that every time that I lose the game this time, it's okay that I lost the game this time because I once did win the game. rather than look at what we're doing right now. So we use the past to justify a bad present. Mm. And that's very common.
1: I think.
4: I think it's just that, like, I've seen a lot of people on the sangha and just before I started working with you, Domirato, like I heard about First Jhana and stuff and that. You know the more and more you relax and the more and more you relax into the satisfaction the first john naturally arises
0: well that's and, what you'll hear around here a lot of places you won't hear anything like that
4: right and i think like sometimes i have that in my head of like am i there yet like is is there more there like well. Because, I, because also I've experienced a greater degree of satisfaction in the past
0: comparably to now. Well, do you remember that satisfaction and how it feels and we can go back and do it now? It always has to be done about right now, what's happening right now.
4: I haven't been able to just remember it and then do it. I mean, is that, are you suggesting that, trying that?
0: Oh, absolutely. In fact, that's oh, really Yeah, you know, do it all the time. An example of that is giving the student a happy song, kind of a happy song that if he's old enough, it'll be from when his childhood in the 1950s, because that's where I get all my happy music. I haven't heard any happy music since the Beatles.
4: So you're but, saying it helps to deliberately remember that past satisfaction and then bring that it's into in the present.
0: present moment to remember that you can feel good to remember that you can change the unwholesome thought in this moment to a wholesome thought by a trigger mm. or a an anchor. This is what Anapanasati is really all about: is learning to use triggers or anchors. You've hmm. you've heard in psychology about uh, pushing your buttons. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you've got some happy buttons in there. Go push them instead.
2: You know, my favorite analogy is uh, the Peter Pan. I like to say, I like to give people, people the Peter Pan advice, you know, like think of one happy thought you'll fly. There's some really, there's real wisdom in that, you know? Like that's really essentially what we're talking about. Focus on your happy thought. You'll fly.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's the main teaching of the Buddha. That's what it is. What's missing in the um, Peter Pan edition of that is the idea, the magical idea given to children that all you have to do is have that one happy thought right now and you'll be able to fly from now on. That's how we kind of get it. In other words, we've got our diploma. We've got our degree. We've got our uh thing and so now uh, that we've had that we can we can fly we've got our pilot's license or whatever like that uh and the reality (laughs) is that we can only fly when we are having the happy thought we cannot rely upon the happy thoughts of the past but we can use those thoughts of the past of joy and happiness, remembering things that were really marvelous for you, and then bring not that memory up to the present moment, but how you felt in that moment. Bring that to right now. Everyone remembers how to feel good. You've had good feelings in your past. No one can make it to adulthood with just one unhappy or miserable moment Moment by moment by moment, day after day, no, we have a mixture. We do have recess. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. And so let us remember that (laughs) we did have recess and that we do have recess. Let's have recess right now.
2: I kind of get it, right? Like the memory is essentially based in the mind and if it's like so there's kind of like a process right if we're remembering the memory we're going into the past of the mind and we're basically going to get neurotic right because we're hanging out in the mind it's drumming up a lot of concepts it's a lot of ideas and thoughts and it creates a kind of pathway it's like it takes time to go from the memory to the thinking to the past to now and what you're i think what you're saying and the real wisdom and the power of the buddhist teaching is that essentially he's like you know just go straight to the source just remember recall a feeling and that's really rare because you know like we're i have never really thought or trained to use my memory in such a way to remember the feeling because it's always about like we're just not really trained to do that but really if we're just remembering the feeling there is it's just a direct experience of the past feeling and then if we concentrate on the present moment experience, we're going to continue to perpetuate that feeling just by concentrating on it and having a uh, extreme concentration on the present moment. And mm-hmm. so, like, it's basically there's no loop and there's it's, it's I don't know, I just kind of I see the symmetry and the beauty of it, like the genius of the technique, because you're shortcutting the memory and you're shortcutting the concepts, you're literally just using memory to get the ball rolling and then you're using concentration on the present moment and that perpetuates it and it doesn't get you into the conceptual mind you're just feeling good i just kind of like that's really amazing so i just want to kind of articulate that for you guys because that's what i was thinking and seeing but yeah
1: it's definitely genius technique
0: Uh you just mentioned um corey the concept of uh Concentrating on the present moment. I remember many, many years ago seeing a photo of a cat that was hanging on and clinging to a a limb. And the caption was to hang on. Okay, you've heard that to hang on, which is basically what you mean by concentrating on the moment. But a better way for that cat would have been to not hang on, but rather get up on top of the limb and balance. That's a really important concept that we feel like that we're just kind of hanging on, like hanging on to the present moment or concentrating, holding on to it, where in fact the real way of doing it is getting on top of it and then perching ourselves, balancing ourselves on top of it. And that takes almost no effort now. So I, would, I would recommend to not concentrate on the, current, on the present moment, but to relax into the present moment in a balanced way. Just relax. You don't have to concentrate. But in fact, that word concentration seems to have become part and parcel of the Buddhist vocabulary. But almost always the word concentration has negative connotations to it. Um, An example of that is is that concentration actually means to take things out and put something so that you have only the essence left that I'm, I'm not going to pay any attention to that stuff out there. I'm going to go just concentrate on this. But rea- mm. but the, another way of looking at it is, is that in this present moment, there is one heck of a lot of stuff happening. In this present moment, there is a whole lot more. Of, I mean, when we say ho- a whole lot, we're talking about um, 10 to the, gosh, how many <laughs> powers do you have probably 10 to the 80th is how many things are happening right now around you. I mean, it's just unbelievable how much stuff is going on. And if we concentrate on just one of them, we're going to miss all the other stuff. What we don't need to do is to concentrate. What we need to do is to open the mind and open our senses to what's really happening because a whole lot of stuff is happening. How good at we are we at paying attention to really what's going on here rather than trying to throw out all of that stuff that is going on so that we can concentrate on this. And so um, one of the easy examples that I use is concentrated frozen orange juice. That was very, very common in the 1970s. Okay. But the funny part about frozen concentrated orange juice is nobody drinks frozen concentrated orange juice. It's not concentrated for drinking, it's concentrated for transportation purposes. That when you get that uh, uh, frozen concentrated orange juice before you drink it, you make it not concentrated anymore. You make it samati, you put back one of the ingredients that was missing from it. And so real orange juice that used to be frozen concentrated orange juice is now orange juice because it's now a juice, not a concentrate. So this is one of the problems with the word concentration. The word samati that was the original poly has the quality of a gable. It has the quality of uh, tent poles. It has the quality of putting things together like a, a tripod or um, let us say um, an American Indian teepee that has poles and those poles are all tied at the top because if the poles weren't tied together at the top then you could make that teepee and it just fall over. Every pole will just go whichever way, right? But if you take those poles and tie them mm-hmm. at the top, then that means that when you plant each of those poles into the ground in the area around that you're going to make the teepee, they will have stability. And this is what we're looking for. But when the mind is samadhi, that means that all the factors that are needed are collected together, that we are not a crowd inside. Now, Eric Byrne and Sigmund Freud did point out that we're often a crowd inside. That we have an argument with ourselves. That uh, one of the ways that we're a crowd and decide is that when we lie, that means that we've got both the truth and the lie. Mm. That makes us duality. That puts us in one state. Another one would be uh, when the mind is in a state of doubt. Well, that means that it might be this, it might be that, it might be all over the place, but it's not collected together. So when a mind is unified and collected in samadhi, That means that it's free from doubt because it's whole and unified and not missing any key ingredients question what
3: does
2: samadhi feel like how do we know that we're in
0: samadhi uh well there is a list of things that we can use as a guide for that but uh the the actual answer to it is, is that when the mind is in samadhi, wow, do you know it. <laughs> oh, wow. But these there are key ingredients for the mind going into samadhi. This is why we talk about it um, in the sense of samadhi in re- reference also into the practice of anapanasati and the, and the way that we um, practice. Anapanasati is building the skills that are needed. And when we have those skills that are needed put together as a group so that they are aspects of something, then it becomes a whole. All right, an example of that is an automobile. If you've got the automobile part spread all over the yard, that car is not going to go anywhere. You got the pistons in the garage and you got the uh, crankcase in the closet and you've got the uh, uh, muffers on the roof. That car is not going to go anywhere. You got to put all of those parts together. You got to make the car samati and then you have something new. And what is new? Transportation. The correct functioning of the car, so the correct functioning of the mind then would be what we're looking for when the mind is in samadhi. But when the mind is not in samadhi, it's not going to function correctly. So when Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about getting the mind fit for work, what he means is, is that, yeah, we've got all the parts of the mind that are needed to do the job. We do have the seats and we do have the steering wheel and we do have the engine and we do have uh, tires pumped up and on the uh, the wheels. And everything is put together. Or we can use another example of a clock that if you have a clock that is correctly functioning with all of the gears put into place the way that they were uh, designed with uh, uh, with enough lubrication and the, the parts are clean, then the clock will tick. But if you want to concentrate that clock and take a sledgehammer to it, you can make it small, but it's not going to function very well when it's concentrated. And so this is what happens with meditation. If people get their mind into a state of concentration and then they leave and go out into their normal life and they say, well, why didn't the concentration that I got in meditation help me in my life? The answer is because you are not developing the skills that you need to live. And the place to develop those skills is when we're practicing on and develop those skills. OK, so now that we've got that underway, uh, we can talk about well, what are now the constituent components? Yes. And the answer to that is, is that there are either five or six, depending upon which sutta that you read. Now, that doesn't mean that one is wrong and the other one is right. It just means the approach that's being taken, okay? But the number one item on the list is that the mind has to be free from unwholesome thoughts. It has to be free from that 99%.
4: In a moment or for several moments?
0: Well, whatever moment is for you, this moment, right now, okay? Now, uh, if you want to give that wall clock time, a moment can be a split second down to a tenth of a second. It can be five or six seconds. For some people, The moment can last for an hour. When you are confused and trying to work something out, you can be in that mind moment of confusion for 10, 15, or 20 minutes until the old noggin gets so tired that you go off into tiredness, and now you're not in confusion anymore. So a a mind moment can last for a long time. It depends upon if we're still doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. One mind moment after the next. So that the word moment then does not have necessarily a time on it. Then in fact, the old joke is what happens once in a minute, twice in a moment, but not once in a thousand years. Do you know the answer to that little? Once in a minute, twice in a moment, but not even once in a thousand years, the letter M.
2: Oh man, I was close to it. I was like a second away from being like, it's gotta be phonetic or words or letters.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Man.
0: Okay. So are the other constituents? Yeah, well, we've got that. Let's go for in this moment. Free from the hindrances that moment can last. For a tenth of a second, a full second, five minutes. Let us plan on that happening for five minutes. If you want to have a goal. But it's just one happy moment after another. Because the mind is wholesome. So we're staying in at least this moment in that 1%. Making the mind wholesome, taking unwholesome thoughts, taking wants, desires, and all of that out, and coming to a wholesome thought. So the next thing that we look at is that what is a wholesome thought. And that wholesome thought then would be the kind of thought that will help us gather the rest of the items that we need in this group of five or six. And so this is the state of Anapanasati that is normally referred to as step 10, which means to gladden the mind. Now, please be careful that these steps are not marching orders, one, two, three, four. It's much more like a dance. Or sometimes you're just flying through the air and there's no steps to be taken, but you just made it 30 feet (laughs) if you're a ballerina. (laughs) (laughs) And if you develop the skill of being a ballerina, then you can fly through the air with the greatest of ease. The question is, do you have the skills to land? (laughs) So, as we're developing the gladdening of the mind which means also brightening the mind. We're literally talking ourselves into feeling good because we have been using our verbal mental thoughts, our discursive thoughts about what if this could go wrong and what if that could go wrong. We literally train ourselves into feeling bad by the unwholesome thoughts that we have. If we start having wholesome thoughts, if we remember to have a wholesome thought, Even if I just had a wholesome thought and then an unwholesome thought comes back, the question is, it's not, oh, why did that unwholesome thought come back? Because that's just another unwholesome thought. The right thought to have is, aha, I caught you. And now I'm back into wholesome thoughts again. So wholesome thoughts then are the most important quality as opposed to unwholesome thoughts, which is hindrances. So the freedom from the hindrances means that we're already having wholesome thoughts. The kind of thoughts that we can have will be the kinds of thoughts to make us feel the way that we want to feel, which is the Pali word is sukkha. And sukha is exactly opposite of dukkha, that if we are having unwholesome thoughts, we're going to have dukkha. If we're having wholesome thoughts, then we're going to be at least in that moment free from dukkha free from dissatisfaction because we just talked ourselves into being satisfied. So let's look at the constituent components now of suka. It has the quality of, uh, first off, and most important, safety and security, because almost always our unwholesome thoughts are thoughts about what could go wrong, what could happen that's dangerous. We literally spend a lot of time talking ourselves into being afraid, and fear is a primary motivator. Republicans would never go to the polls and vote for anything, especially not a Republican, if they weren't terrified. And so we have to make Republicans terrified. What can we make them terrified about? Well, we can name things. We can name blacks. We can name gays. We can name... uh, Uh, Atheist, we can name uh, Putin, anything that it takes to get people terrified will get them to act. The question is, is what will you do when you're not terrified? More than likely, you're not going to be doing so much action. So we have to get ourselves out of that sense of terrified and into a sense of safe. So I use a little joke, something like, well, look around, folks. There's no alligators on the floor. There's no crocodiles here. Yeah. Parker, you check. Make sure. Are there any crocodiles on your floor? (laughs) No. (laughs) And when we recognize, that, actually, you know, kind of think about it. Things are right now safe. Now, the cops may be coming in 10 minutes, but right now they're not here. They're safe. And we need to get ourselves into that feeling of feeling safe, feeling secure, because if we're not safe and not secure, then we're afraid. And afraid is basically a hindrance to feeling good. So your feelings as well as your thoughts can be hindrances. How you feel if you feel bad is a hindrance to how you feel feeling good. And so we actually talk ourselves into, there's nothing to worry about. There's no place to go. There is no problems. There are no bears in the closet. There is no boogeyman that's going to get this naughty little boy here. There is no big God in the sky that is shooting his darts or throwing his trident or anything like that. We're just okay right now. We're safe. And if we can talk ourselves into feeling safe and secure, then we can work on comfortable, Are you comfortable. And if we can get ourselves in the state of safety, security, and comfortable, the next little item on the list is satisfaction. When we feel safe and secure, now we can feel, and, and also comfortable. Now we can feel satisfied. And this is the goal. The immediate goal is to get ourselves in a state of satisfaction. Now, when we practice that over and over and over again, we begin to get the idea that, hey, I can feel safe and I can feel satisfied that this was not a one time shot deal, you know. Our first moment of shot is sort of like beginner's luck, like you have on a pool table. the kid comes in, he doesn't play pool, but he makes his first shot. He jumps up and down for joy, and then he misses every shot for the next five years. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is actually what happens with most meditators. But go back to that beginner's luck, recognizing that you are a beginner. Again, this moment is a brand new moment. You're a beginner. Right now, let's have some beginner's luck. Begin again, never mind, start again. When we do that and recognize that we can start again and we can start again and we can start again, that builds confidence. And so now something new is coming and that new thing that's coming is the state of, I can do this, the feeling of success. So now we have safety, security, comfort, satisfaction, and success. And eventually on top of that will come the last item, and that last item then would be called, uh, sorry, in our language, we don't have a really good language word for it, so I'll use one. But make sure that you understand how I'm defining the word, and that is the feeling of wealth, a feeling of overflowing with success, overflowing with satisfaction, rather than wealth in the sense of money. That you begin to feel that you're rich with joy. So, this is the quality that we're building up. And the Pali words now that we're using, besides the Panchanarava, the hindrances out of the mind, we're now developing Sukha and Piti. In order to develop this uh, Sukha and Piti, we have to apply the mind to the wholesome. And then As we practice applying and applying and beginning to get that skill, because as soon as we apply the mind to the wholesome, it's going to go back to the unwholesome. Alex, you're very familiar with the fact that it's going to go back to the unwholesome. Yes. And so we need to come back again to the wholesome. Remember to keep coming back to the wholesome. Remember, that's the sati. That's the important thing, is to remember that you did take a deep breath and relax. You could deepen another deep breath right now and relax right now. Over and over and over again, we practice this applying the mind to the wholesome, applying the mind to sukha, applying the mind to safety, applying the mind to security, applying the mind to comfort applying the mind to satisfaction, applying the mind to success. And when we keep applying the mind that way, we begin then the next step would be to sustain the mind. If we apply it now and then apply it right 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 now, it right now, it right now that's a way of sustaining it. And so that's the next skill to be developed. Now, along with this would we feel comfortable and really begin to feel comfortable, and really begin to feel satisfied, guess what? The body begins to relax, and that's number six. So, we have freedom from hindrances, sukha, or the feeling of good, the feeling of satisfied. Then we have the pity, which is the feeling of success. We've got this. I can do it. And then we have the applied and sustained thoughts, and then we have the feeling of relaxation in the body. Oh, it's just so relaxed. So these are the five or six items that we bring together in Samadhi. And when we have those five or six factors together in Samadhi, this is referred to in Buddhism as the Samadhi of the first jhana. And it is a normal state. You have been in that state many times. When you were a little kid, tearing that Tucker toy apart or taking that doll <laughs> apart, you were really in a state of satisfaction and joy. Children are in the state of First John on a regular basis up until about the age of four or five. Sure. So we need to get ourselves back into that state that we had when we were little kids. Okay, Robert, you've got a question. Um. Are the jhanas more about satisfaction,
3: or the what we were calling concentration, but we might call unification? That might be a better word. That was uh, mm-hmm. a question I was going to ask. But um, are they more about the happiness
0: or the
3: unification?
0: Yes, that in fact that's a word that the, is even, I would say, correctly translated out of the Pali. Right unification of mind is a good definition of Sama Aryan Samadhi. Right, noble unification of mind. This is what we're looking for. And, and the, what is the mind when it's unified like this? It's got these constituent components. It's free from unwholesome thought. It has satisfaction, not dissatisfaction. It has Sukha, which uh, and then it has the Pity, which is the feeling of success. Now, it is wrongly translated into the word rapture. And we do know what the word rapture is all about. That's when God comes and grabs you. You get flung right up into the air. Okay, so I imagine that, well, maybe you could call pity rapture when you describe it like that, when you're just flung right up into the air. (laughs) But most people, when they get flung right up in the air, they think they're going someplace. Guess what? You are. You're going to land again. The question is, do you have the skills to land? Because you will. Alex, you will land. You will keep crash landing. You will keep crash landing until you learned how to land. And what does that mean? That means is, is that when you do have an unwholesome thought, you can say, Oh, well, that's just another takeoff runway. Mm. It's not a crash land.
4: Would you say that accident. would you say that learning how to land is synonymous with seeing that when you come down from that experience of joy or when you come down from that experience of relaxation and the mind gets more obstructed, that knowing how to land is really just oh, that's okay i don't care about that
0: exactly right again flying yeah land as if you're still flying because then you'll just take right back off and start flying again but if you crash and the feeling of the crash that means that oh no poor me i have crashed right. and okay and now look at all the unwholesome thought i mean you got to go clean the runway you got to uh throw out the garbage you got to um build a new airplane, you got to repair the airport. I mean, look at all kinds of thoughts that we have just because yeah. we had a negative thought. But if you can and learn how to land, then you just take right back off.
4: And it seems like the only reason why that crash landing happens is because and I because care you so much.
0: Looking, you're right, because you didn't look where you're going. You cared instead.
4: I cared instead, exactly. And so of not caring... You're- not caring is synonymous with not going. It, it, not caring is synonymous with seeing that it takes a whole bunch of work to crash the plane, to rebuild mm-hmm. the plane, to rebuild the runway, and all this stuff. So, not caring is just the easier route. That's like, right, oh,
0: I just don't care about it. Yeah, it's nothing That's
4: important. fine. Yeah, everything is good.
0: So, so we don't. What we had, Corey. Yeah, what was
2: cool? I it would be like equanimity, like not caring apathy would be a negative, and equanimity would be like positive not caring. Mm-hmm. So that's a subtle difference, but yeah. Oh, yeah, what a
0: beautiful right. way of saying it. I hadn't even thought about it like that. Yeah, yeah that's, that, me that's, me neither. That's that's right, good. right. Easy, right. Uh, I happily don't give a flying flip. <laughs> <laughs> there
2: you go. Skillful not caring.
0: Yeah, there skillful there not caring. That's what it is robert you got your hand up
3: um yeah so uh, my first question was um about um
4: i'm gonna go guys good night uh, okay good night, Alex. You. thank you bye
3: um are the is more about this um the happiness having a um, like a, a positive mindset uh, a high valence mindset to use the neuroscience terminology but just to, is it more about the happiness or is it about the unification?
0: I can't see the difference. That's like saying, is this coin a quarter because I can see the tail, or is this coin a quarter because I can see the head? That's the kind of question that you're asking, that unification of mind actually means that you're satisfied or joyful about the state of mind you're in. How could you have a unification of mind and still be dissatisfied? That makes no sense. The question Whoa. is, what is the definition of happiness? That in fact, uh, years ago, I used to talk about joy, 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 joy all the time and use that as a definition of uh, sukha. And that a lot of guys would say, or even some uh, gals would also say that, yeah, I do feel joy, but it's not enough joy. I want more joy. Well, that means that their joy is unsatisfying. What kind of joy is that? Wanting more of it is not being satisfied. So the satisfaction and the joy are interrelated in that way. They're the same thing. You cannot have a mind that's unified when you've got a mind that's dissatisfied because the mind that's dissatisfied is out looking for the satisfaction. For in fact, we don't need to get anything to be satisfied. That's the beauty of the teaching of the Buddha is to recognize you don't need anything to be satisfied. Just be satisfied. Just remember that's all you really need is these little pieces of the Eightfold Noble Method, which I have been harping on without listing in order, and that is going back to the formality, is to remember, that's the sati, to wakey-wakey, look at what you're doing, is the second one, and that is to remember to look. That is one's right looking, a right view. A lot of people think that the teaching of the Buddha is about right noble view means a viewpoint. Or a an attitude, in a way of a uh, a world view or a perspective, and that's true about ordinary right view, and it's true about wrong view. These are world views, but the teaching of the Buddha right noble view is not a view; it's a viewing, to look, to note, to see, and with that we then take the right effort to note that this is an unwholesome thought and to throw that out and to come in and have a wholesome thought and to see that wholesome thought as wholesome and congratulate yourself for having a wholesome thought. And that's another wholesome thought is congratulations. And so that that 1% is I'm satisfied. The second percent point is congratulations. You now have 2% because you're congratulating yourself for 1%. And so this is how we get it to build. Go ahead, Robert.
3: How do you assess the feeling tone of a wholesome thought? For example, I can sometimes have thoughts that feel very wholesome at the time, but in retrospect, I see that they cause tremendous suffering.
0: Well, that's is the there, process. That's why I call them skills. What used to look satisfying was merely just gratification. In other words, we got some value out of it. That's why I yelled at my mom, is because that made me feel tough and powerful and strong. And I was satisfied with arguing with her and telling her what a slut she was. But then I go away later and I recognize, wait a minute, that was a pretty dangerous thing to tell my mom what a slut she is. What does that <laughs> tell her about me? <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> And so when we do it like that, we begin to wake up to recognize, yeah, I did get gratification from that. But now I can see that it was unwholesome and that's the learning process. And so now we recognize I can find better gratification that's not so dangerous. When I'm dealing with my mom and she's fussing at me, I could, you know, I can get along with her a whole lot better by maybe agreeing with her rather than uh, taking the power that I feel by being angry. So we get gratification by being angry. We get gratification by doing the wrong thing, almost in the sense of rebellion. But one of the problems Mm. with rebellion is is that it's dangerous. (laughs) Even though it feels greatly gratifying, it can also be dangerous. And so this is the real looking that we have to do, is not just to see the gratification that we would normally just see, but, also, the danger, because if we can see the danger in these unwholesome thoughts, then we can plot our escape.
1: Yeah, I got a good example. Mm. That's I mean, if you cool. wanna,
2: yeah, a, a good example of this is like, um, I like to try and help people with wisdom and teachings, and you know I like to try to reach out and help people. And I was reaching out to try and help someone recently, and they I took what I said, and they kind of distorted it, and they got very defensive and angry and combative. They wanted to say a lot of negative things to me, and I wanted to defend myself because I didn't want to make them mad. But because of the state that they were in, they took it the wrong way, and they kind of created suffering, and then they lashed out at me. And so my desire to essentially be right, to, and it, that's what it really felt like, is I felt like you didn't understand me. I was trying to help you out and you kind of took it the wrong way, and then you suffered, and then you made me suffer by lashing out at me.
0: No, so he I, did not make I, you suffer. You chose to do that all on your own.
2: Yeah, it's like an unconscious, it automatically happened because I'm so used to just doing it. Right. It this was
0: unconscious. That's what we mean by ignorance, is unconscious.
2: Yeah, and so I took the time to step back, because I replied once, and I saw the cycle happening. And then I was like, I looked forward and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be able to change this person's mind. They're just going to stay where they want to stay. It's their choice to stay in this cycle. And And so I decided Mm -hmm. that, yeah, I don't need to be gratified. You know, like it's just going to result in them lashing out at me yet again. They're going to suffer and I'm going to suffer. So I Mm -hmm. am going to look past this need to be gratified to be right. And I'm just going to drop it. I'm just going to go. I'm just going
0: to move on. I'm just going to be happy. I can be happy and satisfied that they don't like me and they don't like what I said. And that's OK. But because we don't like it, we think that, oh, well, I can get rid of my not liking what he thinks about me by convincing him otherwise. Guess <laughs> what? He's not going to get convinced. Yeah, he's whatever I have been doing has gotten him unconvinced, and if I keep doing that, he's going to get even more unconvinced. Then, in That's fact, the way that, I, yeah, and so the right way to handle that is with joy. You don't have to convince him of anything. All you have to do is find your joy in this moment, and if you can find that joy in this moment, then you can share your joy with him, whether he's convinced or not. That in fact, that's what the reason that you wanted to convince with him, you wanted to convince him is so that you could get the gratification of your being right. Thinking that now I will be happy because I was right. Guess what? I
2: just wanted to share my happiness
0: with them. Right. In fact, well, well, that's that's because you weren't sharing your uh, your happiness with him. You were sharing your information, which he called as judgmental information. So, what we need to do instead of sharing information with people is sharing joy. Because that's what you really wanted to share in the first place. Yeah. And so just laugh and tease and poke and play and have fun and all of that kind of stuff without teaching him anything. Get him into a good mood, and then you're successful. Because that's what we're that's the only practice of Anapanasati is, anyway, is get your own self into a good mood right now. And not that as a habit so that you can get yourself into a good mood anytime that you want to be in a good mood. And you want to be in a good mood probably most of the time. And so we need to practice. That was,
1: uh,
2: Yeah, this person was like dealing with depression. And so they had a kind of automatic, I can't be happy mentality. And so no matter how happy or joyful I was or how much wisdom I shared, they just refused to because they had this belief that. I'm depressed and I can't be undepressed. So, you trying to do anything other than recognize how depressed I am is just you being judgmental and wrong. And so, I, I had to uh-huh. learn the hard way that some people just won't allow you to make them happy. You just okay. have to let them be and do what you well, got to do. And
0: not ju- only that, ju- there is jujitsu. And let me tell you about a little bit of gentle music, uh, jujitsu. So, there someone is trying to prove to you how bad they feel. And you use the words that they use. So if they use the word depression, you can say, wow, you're right. I have never seen anybody as depressed as you are right now. Let's have a contest. Let's see if I can get even more depressed than you are. Okay, so you begin to tease them about the depression itself. And pretty soon, just like Parker, they'll come up with a great big smile. <laughs> because they begin to say, hey, I may have been depressed, so depressed that you couldn't get me out of it. But when you show me how depressed I am and what a joke it is, now we can begin to laugh. Yeah.
1: I did it for
0: you. <laughs> right. So just maintain your joy. The thing of it is, is that it wasn't that he um, refused to... Become undepressed. It was that he was just doing what he was doing and you used his depression to lose your joy. Make sure when you're talking to people that they can't talk you out of your joy. You keep talking to yourself, well, I can handle this guy. I mean, I don't care how depressed you are. Yeah, Corey, I'd
3: I'd I'd add to that. Um it's a lot harder to make the world a less depressing place if you're depressed. When you're not depressed, it's kind of like your automatic response to things. So it makes it, it takes uh-huh. a lot
0: of the weight off your shoulders. Uh-huh. Or we could make it even more ridiculous. Wow, you're so depressed. You know, while you're talking to me, I'm getting depressed too. The two of us are so depressed now. Why don't we go jump off a ledge together? <laughs> Then and then the guy will say, Well, I'm not that depressed. Oh, you're not that depressed. Okay, well now we got someplace to go. <laughs> if you're not depressed enough to kill yourself right now, you're not that depressed.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I guess I would just be so afraid of them having a different response that I would be afraid to to be so risky because like I just kind of it's my compassion that made me reach out to this person anyway and so my but it was also like you're saying my desire for them to be other than they are i I wanted them to be not depressed and so that desire which i have no control over essentially was making me suffer because i was like this person is in such a bad place i remember being in that place i'm good now i want to help them be good and that essentially that desire for something to be other than the way it was we talked about this before and that Mm -hmm. is a source of suffering to desire something to be different than the way that it is now.
0: Um, If you notice, Corey, what I said uh, in that was that um, I was using the language of joining or the language of what we call pacing. In other words, if they are that depressed, then you go get intentionally, consciously that depressed with them. Go ahead. Go get depressed with them. Make it a contest. See if you can get even more depressed than they are. And let them, you know, very slowly they'll figure out that, hey, you're teasing them right now and this is kind of a joke. How depressed can you make me? Oh, wow, I can get really depressed. Do you have a gun? (laughs) 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 Can I borrow your gun? You got a knife? I'm I'm gonna do it right now. I mean, if if you don't kill yourself, I'm gonna kill myself. Let's let's do it together. And be, and, and begin to see how ridiculous it is. But you have to keep your joy with that. And it may even though I've done it in like five to ten seconds, it may take you 30 minutes of being depressed with them. That uh-huh. you out depress them. If they've got their hands in their their face like this, uh, sitting with their um, knees on their, uh, or their elbows on their knees, you know, that kind of position that they've got, you can get even lower than that. You can lay down on the floor with your hands in your face. Take on their posture, but exaggerate it. That's an easy way to deal with it is to show them just how depressed they are by mirroring them, but you do it consciously. This is called pacing. And once you get uh, successful at the pacing them, when they recognize how uh, depressed you are, then you can begin to make a change and they'll start to follow you. It's like once um, once you have that trailer hitched to your car. Now you can pull it, but you've got to get it hitched to your car first. You can't just drive by that trailer expecting the trailer to just come following along with you. That's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> you've got to hook with them, and the way to hook with them is by getting into the same state they but you don't do it, uh, let us say, ignorantly because that's actually possible. In fact, in a way, that's exactly what did happen. That because they were so depressed and you couldn't get them out of depressed, you decided to get depressed too. So they won that one. But if you do it consciously, then you can go ahead and get depressed, but you're doing it as a scam, but you're doing it to connect with them. And once you've got that connection, now you can drive away slowly and they'll just follow along.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This kind of leads into the question that I had earlier, which is a kind of problem that I've noticed with a lot of people. And I'm calling it the prison of rationality. Essentially, it's this kind of way that the mind operates, that the mind functions on rationality. And so people begin to have these huge concepts and these frameworks of like, oh, you know, being happy is being wealthy, and I'm poor. So that means that poor means sad, and I'm sad because I'm not so they build these frameworks that they believe are rational. But really what they're doing is they are imprisoning themselves in a kind of prison of rationality. And this ra- this prison of rationality is almost like a function of the mind. It seems it to is, thrive and work.
0: But it has and something so- missing. And that missing part is correct information. Yes, we are rational, but we're often rational using... Irrational data to try to figure it out and make it into rational without using good data. Here's an example of that. The one about poor. Guess what? Most of the people who were the most happiest on the planet Earth are actually quite poor. I Chand Buddha probably never had more than you know two coins to rub together since he was a child. And yet he was happy. The other side of it is, is that if I tell you, um, Corey or Dama you cannot have a hundred million dollars. And you said, well, yeah, I kind of know that. If you tell Donald Trump he cannot have a hundred million dollars, he's going to get really unhappy. <laughs> and so, um That means the the point of of the scale are your own expectations, that poor people are, are actually more likely to be happy because they at least are reconciled to the fact that they don't have enough money to call themselves rich, and they never will, but they could still be happy. To where the people who are greedy and have money and want more money and more money, there's no end to the greed. There's no end to how much money that they can have. Then, in fact, it becomes a contest. Look at uh, Bezos and Zuckerberg and um, um, Bill Gates and um, I forgot to die uh, his name at at, uh, Google and and Elon Musk. Those dudes are now competing with each other, making each other miserable over who's got the most money. And I don't have nearly as amount of money as any of those guys, and I'm happier than all of them put together. So that means then that the piece of information that we have is I will not be happy until I have money. That's false information. And that's how we use our rationale. We use our rationale based upon wrong information (laughs) and we wind up making ourselves miserable. But if we actually see what's real, then our rationality can uh, be useful. And the reality is that you can be happy right now without that money.
2: The thing that I was also going to want to ask you about is when it comes to the prison of prison of rationality, if we are going to be essentially manipulating our own mind and choosing our mindset and we're choosing wholesome thoughts and our thoughts are bound with this kind of prison of rationality. So there's two ways to get around that that come up to me really quickly. One mm-hmm. of them is to use wisdom, right? Use the practices mm-hmm. that we've been talking about.
0: Right. The other Which one to improve of, the data. Exactly. To improve the data. Right. Let's, and let's the other not one use the childhood data that we collected years ago. Let's use the data that we have available to us now.
2: Yeah, Do practice and develop new database.
0: Okay, what's the other possibility?
2: The other possibility was um, use the mind like a puppet. Be a manipulator. Essentially change things as you want them to be changed. Don't be bound by rationality. Essentially try to transcend rationality. And that's a kind of a very difficult thing to do. But I've found ways to do it. But I've also not used it because it seems to be that the mind seems to function best when it has this principle of rationality to kind of bind everything together. So when we were talking earlier about Anapanasati and and choosing wholesome thoughts, my first thought was to manipulate the mind and to essentially uh, kind of rework everything using a kind of just, just using them, choosing to think what I think and rearranging the concepts as I see fit and to just kind of manipulate everything to essentially play my mind like a fiddle. And then yes, the other one is I you-
0: highly recommend that you do that. But there's okay. a slight difference in there. And that is is that we are going to do that fiddle playing or that violin. First off we're going to do is we're going to tune that violin correctly. But ultimately, when I say the tuning, the violin, that means that we're starting to put in good data rather than, okay, I'm going to play this violin. I don't care if it's out of tune. I don't even know if it's in or out of tune. And so that's the ignorant way of doing it. Uh, uh, But uh, if you practice correctly, the whole idea of right of viewing or right looking or right noting is to see things as they really are in that sense right now you guys are safe not one of you've got an alligator on your floor there is nothing to be afraid of why do i feel a fear right now Obviously, the only reason I would have fear right now is because I'm thinking about something that's fearful that's not here right now. (laughs) And so let us use reality. Let's use good data. Let's use accurate data and use that rationality. And I so, and then we get. You can say that the uh, the way that we're talking ourselves into feeling good is by telling ourselves real good things, as opposed to talking ourselves into feeling bad by telling ourselves things that are bad news that are not real right now.
2: Okay, I get what you're saying. Like it, and I think what I was getting to is that it feels like it is manipulation when we are doing these things that are essentially kind of breaking our previous prison of rationality that was built on ignorance. And so no, it maybe it feels yeah, like okay, manipulation.
0: All right. Right. It is manipulation because you're adding good data. Wow yeah. what a manipulation Manipulating
2: our ignorance. Sorry. A wisdom. Sorry, I
3: wouldn't
0: use the I wouldn't use
3: the analogy of tuning the violin. Because it sort of implies that you're going to twist some knobs at the top, and then it will be in tune. It'll be in tune for several days, or we sort of depends how often you play a violin. Maybe, maybe just worked, a day. I,
0: it right? yeah. Yeah, <laughs> violin. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes, if you're tuning all day, you won't play many notes. But um. It's, um, it doesn't tend to work like that in my experience. Like, I could do a very good meditation, for example. You could think of that as the, the tuning the violin, just the tuning of it. Let's say I'm doing some sort of, some jhanas meditation or something, right? But mm-hmm. um, after I get up, the hindrances come back. So I think you're very, I think your analogy is, is, is good and it's better even just that you're playing the happy notes on the violin. So instead of playing in minor chords, you play in major chords.
0: Well, that may be true, but at least we're following um, a set of rules that have been developed over the centuries about what good music sounds like to your ear. As opposed to, and I have been in other cultures, and in fact, one of the things that happened when I was in uh, a monk traveling with another group of monks in Cambodia is having to be, uh, let us say, assaulted by um, uh, ancient tribal Cambodian music. I would call it tinky-tinky music, but I mean, they would make music by banging on all kinds of things, and it didn't matter whether it was in tune or not, according to Western ears. For them, it was music, for me, I know Beethoven and Bach, and I know the scales, and I know all of this, and they weren't doing any of that kind of stuff. (laughs) How could they possibly call that music? (laughs) Beautiful chaos. Well, I cared because they weren't following my rules. When I recognize they're following their own rules and are doing it quite well, then that's their reality. The problem is, really, Corey, is, is that we think things are real, because that's what we're used to. But in fact, there is a lot of stuff that is real that we're not used to. But what we would rather do is use the, uh, the things that are old and familiar that are not real and keep winding up in suffering and dukkha when in fact, if we would look and investigate and find out what's actually real and then use our rationale about what's really real And come out of the habit of using bad information and winding up in suffering, we can use good information and wind up in joy. Anytime that you can remember to do that, let's look at what's real. What's real is the cops are not coming. What's real is, is that it is not snowing right now. It's not cold. All right. So that's the reality of it. And that's what uh, a lot of um, uh, in our society, mental health is all about. That people are less mentally healthy because they're using bad data. It's not the mind is bad. It's the data that's bad. Yeah. And we're irrational. No, we're completely rational. We're just used uh, completely rational uh, thought process using bad data. In computers, we call that G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out. (laughs) Yeah. So this is why we have to remember to look at the kinds of thoughts that we're having. Are these things wholesome, which means are they unreal? Or Are we going to start having real thoughts? And the real thoughts is that everything is okay. Everything is fine. Everything is joyful. Everything is beautiful right here, right now. I don't have to worry mm-hmm. about way over there. Let those people over there worry about what's over there. Here, I don't have any worries.
1: Really? Yeah, this is definitely where it becomes a skill.
2: You got to practice huh? and train into it. You got to put the good information in,
1: get right. used
0: to how it feels Except and recognize good, in good information. That's the skill of right view is to remember to use real correct information rather than what we're used to using, stuff out of the past. So we actually could go so far then as to say, let's use the new real data of this moment rather than the old data from the past because the old data from the past is more likely to be incorrect because times changed. And so yeah. let's... New data, new data. Like political polls. We always want the latest political poll. I don't care what a poll, happened, uh, that uh, the outcome of a poll that happened before the last election. I want to know what's happening now. Yeah. Yeah. And yet people will go on around saying, well, Donald Trump won that election. He won this election. Well, yeah, but that was <laughs> in the past. What's he doing now? So boy, this is really a good point. Remember that you've got new data. Let's go look at the new data. Robert, you still got your hand up. Yes. So my question is,
3: let's say we have some um, negative emotions come up, but they really feel like something that we have to face to let go. They don't feel like something that it would be skillful to avoid um, by just gladdening the mind. They feel like there's something we need to engage with and feel and and listen to what they're trying to tell us.
0: All right, let's let's do it this way, just as a quick um, answer to that. Look at it in the sense of a a corral, where you have four quadrants. Right? You've got a vertical bar and you've got a horizontal bar. On the vertical bar, we have, are you going to do it or not? Whatever it is. You're, you just had a flat tire and you've called the car to a stop. You have to make a choice. Am I going to get out of the car and change the tire? I'm going to want to sit here in the car and not change the tire. Or anything else. Am I going to eat this next bite? Something else like that is, is that, oh, there's this old piece of food in the refrigerator. Shall I eat it or shall I throw it out? The answer is it's going to turn to shit regardless of whether you eat it or not. It's going to turn to shit whether you eat it or not. That's the reality of it. With that, then you can recognize that, well, maybe I should not eat it. Maybe I should go ahead and throw it out. For a fat guy, he's going to eat it because he knows that he's supposed to eat things. He's been training himself his whole life. They they call it the seafood diet. I (laughs) I eat anything I see. (laughs) <laughs> but that's not what the wisdom is, is that that's an old piece of food. It probably is not going to be nearly as delicious. I mean, you know what yesterday's French fries taste like. So why would you eat yesterday's French fries? Well, because I have French fries and I know what French fries are. Therefore, if I eat these old French fries from yesterday, I'll pretend that they are today's French fries. Or in fact, no, they're just old. All right? So this is another way of looking at data is like is like food. It gets old and it gets old quickly. And so let's stay fresh. Just stay in the moment. Let's stay with real data that's happening now. And the real data that's happening right now isn't that everything is okay. Everything is fine. That's the way thank it looks. Getting, let's get some new data. Well, guys, this has been actually quite a nice call. This is it. I like it. Good data here. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank Todd, you that th- yes, Todd, good to see you. Good to meet you. I hope to see you yes. again soon. And, nice to meet you, Todd. thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It was nice to meet all of you, and I look forward to the next one. Thank you. Okay, great. Looking forward uh, to it. What I'm looking forward to is for you guys to become friends with each other, to share the Dhamma. I really appreciate, Robert, that he goes on to Skype, and I also appreciate uh, uh, Dhamma who's man. He's, by the way, he's the king of discord. Congratulations, <laughs> Das, Thank you so much for all of the nice work that you're doing to keep the thing going for us. And so you probably met a lot of friends that way. Yeah. So that's what we're all about, is just that if you can learn to make friends with yourself on the inside, that's Dhamma. If you can then learn to make friends with people on the outside, then that's Sangha. And that's what we're promoting here is mutual friendship and joy. By the way, the same thing that uh, Jesus was trying to promote that the Christians have missed out on. Jesus is all about cheer and uh, camaraderie and the golden rule and taking care of one another and uh, charity and uh, generosity. And Christianity is all about, oh no, We better go get this law passed or things are going to go really south. Well, guess what? The south is going really south. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you all for so much. And I, I, um, I promote friendship, friendship on the inside, friendship on the outside. And so I hope that you guys learn to become good friends with each other. You all are each other's Dhamma teachers. Thank you, Parker, for all of the kind work that you're doing, too. I really appreciate it. Parker's the one who actually is doing the most. In fact, yesterday I uploaded 26 videos (laughs) for him (laughs) to put on YouTube. So thank you, guys. I very much appreciate all the work and all the. you're giving, and uh, may you guys gain great benefit from your happy, joyful uh, friendships that you're developing.
3: It's yes. great to see you guys. This is really great. It's good to see you guys. See, as always.
0: See ya. Bye.
1: See ya. Ciao.